listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. They did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jim, for that reading. It's going to kill me today. I don't have a screen to look at. It's all right. It's all right. Millennial problems. All right. uh, The title of our sermon today is Who is the Greatest? Uh, It comes from the argument the disciples are having in our passage. And honestly, I'm not sure if there's another question in the English language that can start a fight or a debate quite as quickly as who's the greatest. Uh, It's something in human nature, I think. We love to argue about who's the best, who's the smartest, who's the strongest, who's the fastest. We'll argue about the greatest movie or TV show, the greatest country. Wars are fought over that one. The greatest church the greatest political party, we are obsessed with the question, who is the greatest? I think we see this especially in sports. Uh, What's the greatest sports team, the greatest player? Uh, I am not much of a sports guy, despite what my uh, athletic build uh, might suggest, Um, but I do love hockey, uh, ice hockey, especially the NHL. Do we have any other NHL fans in here, any hockey fans? Okay, a few, a few. The rest of you will just have to bear with us for five minutes. Um, But on the question of who's the greatest hockey player of all time, there's one name that always rises to the top. Who is it? Wayne, yeah, Ovechkin, there you go. That's even worse. Uh, No, Wayne Gretzky, right? Number 99 for the Edmonton Oilers. I think we've got that pretty boy's picture up there. Uh, Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky... was a great hockey player, all right? There's no, there's no denying that, don't get me wrong. He broke all the records, you know, most goals, most wins, you name it. The guy won the championship four times. I'm also sure that Wayne Gretzky is a nice person who loves his wife and children, <clears throat> but I cannot stand Wayne Gretzky. I just don't like him, I don't like him. Um, he never did anything to me. Wayne Gretzky never uh, slighted me personally or anything like that, but he annoys the crap out of me because Wayne Gretzky overshadowed the player who, in my opinion, is the actual best hockey player of all time, Mario Lemieux. Put Lemieux's picture up there. I I can't even see. I assume it's up there. That's what a hockey player looks like right there. 
Mario Lemieux <clears throat> played for the Pittsburgh Penguins from 1984 to 97. I grew up literally watching this guy play hockey. Uh, and when Lemieux was playing, he was the best, or arguably the best. He and Gretzky were always neck and neck in the standings. If Lemieux was number one at something, Gretzky was number two and vice versa. Lemieux averaged two points per game throughout his entire career, same as Gretzky. He had multiple eight-point games, games where he scored eight points. Most hockey teams don't score eight points in a single game. He had like three games like that. But then in 1997, <clears throat> Mario Lemieux got cancer and he had to retire. He was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, treatable. Lemieux beat cancer. By all accounts, he's doing great today. But it ended his career way too early. He was like at the height of his game when he left the league. Mario Lemieux played 600 less games than Wayne Gretzky, but they're still neck and neck on most of the, most of the records. You gotta wonder, if Lemieux hadn't had his career ended so early, maybe he would be remembered today as the greatest hockey player of all time. We'll never know, and I could talk about this all day. I could go on and on about Mario Lemieux, but you all came here to hear about Jesus, right? Okay, okay, well, <clears throat> we'll stop. For you non-hockey fans, we'll continue. It's fine. Uh, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about our passage, and let's talk about this argument with the disciples over who's the greatest. We're in Mark chapter 9. Our passage begins with Jesus predicting his death for the second time. Uh, the disciples don't really track with it, though, because they are too busy arguing about who's the greatest. They get to the place they were heading, and Jesus is like, what were you guys arguing about along the way? And the disciples won't tell him. They're too embarrassed. This is actually a sign of progress. We've already seen uh, in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, that Mark does not portray the disciples in a very positive light. They are always clueless, always missing the point. Jesus is always having to correct them. So this embarrassment is actually a sign of progress. The disciples know they were off base, and so they feel shame. Now, I'm not usually a huge fan of like shame or embarrassment, especially if it's like inflicted from outside. That's usually not healthy. But when we feel embarrassed because we know what we were doing was wrong, if we feel shame or embarrassment because our behavior was out of sync with where we need to be, that's often a first sign of progress. Kind of like how embarrassing it is that so many people still think Wayne Gretzky is the greatest hockey player. Well, <laughs> I'll stop. I'll stop. Jesus sits down to teach the disciples, <clears throat> and he brings over this little kid, and he puts the kid among the disciples, and Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Now, that doesn't quite make sense, right? Like in our culture, we don't usually think of children as being last of all and servant of all. That's not usually where we go. When we think of kids today, well, I'll ask, when you think about children what adjectives would you use to describe children? And be careful because they're, they're right up there. They can hear you. But what adjectives would you use, description words, to describe kids? Playful. Playful. Innocent. Innocent. Honest. Stubborn. They can be stubborn. Adults can be stubborn too, but that works. Gary, I hear you. They can be defiant. Sure. Curious. I like that. I like that. Center of attention, absolutely. Enthusiastic. enthusiastic, that's a good one. 
my mind always goes to that whole innocent, pure, full of awe and wonder. That's where I go when I think about kids. What's that? That's babies? <clears throat> That's good. That's good. It's about one and a half. Um, but no, it's like, it's like my son Zeke. I think of Zeke. Uh, he's four years old, and for the last few weeks, Zeke has been going around. He's in this phase where he's collecting these little things that fall off the trees, these little, I don't even know what they're called. They're like seeds or something. He calls them walnuts. I don't know if that's, if that's are they walnuts? They are, oh, they are walnuts. There you go. He calls them walnuts, and that's what they are. There's a picture. I think we've got a picture up here. This is just a fraction of Zeke's collection. <laughs> um, we've been putting them back outside. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but no, every week, Every day, actually, this kid fills up his pockets in his coat, in his pants. Um, he comes up to me after school, and he's like, Dad, guess what I got today? More walnuts. You know, he just brings these home. It's amazing. <clears throat> but that's that wonder, that joy, that, that innocence that I think of when I think of kids. Uh, in the first century, though, when they thought about children, they did not think of the word innocent. That's not where they would have gone, especially not in Greco-Roman culture. The Romans viewed children as a burden, just another mouth to feed. Kids had no rights back then. There were no safety net protecting them. Um, they, they didn't even have public schools, which meant that kids were incredibly vulnerable, powerless. That's a word people would have used to describe kids back then, powerless. If a family decided that they didn't want or they couldn't afford one of their kids, there were no foster homes, there was no adoption agencies. Best case scenario, the kid would be sold off as a slave. Best case. In fact, in Aramaic, uh, the language Jesus would have been speaking to his disciples most likely, the word for child is the same word as slave. Child and slave were the same word. That shows you exactly where children ranked in that society. So when Jesus sticks a kid in their midst, and he says, whoever wants to be greatest of all must become the servant, the slave of all, that made perfect sense. It wasn't like today where it'd be like this, oh, how cute, how adorable, how innocent, who couldn't welcome one of these little bundles of joy? No, Jesus is saying, you want to be great? You want to be faithful to God? You want your life to count for something? Become the least of the least. Welcome the least. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. That's God, by the way. The one who sent Jesus is God, in case, in case we weren't sure. When we welcome a child, we welcome God. See, Jesus isn't just saying that we should be like children, although that's part of this. He's saying we need to welcome them, welcome the least. Whoever's at the bottom of the social ladder, if you want to be the greatest, become the least. Serve the least. Welcome the least. When you welcome them, you welcome God. You want to judge the greatness of a society? How are the poor people doing? You want to evaluate, you know, what company is the greatest company? Don't look at stock value. How do they treat their lowest paid workers? 
You want to know if your career, your life, your legacy is a great one. How many of the least of these have you elevated? That's the measure of greatness Jesus is giving us in this passage. You want to know if your church is great? You want to know if this is a great church? We usually measure greatness in the church by the same standards as the world. Like, let's be honest. Uh, We look at the numbers. That's how we usually evaluate churches. How many people show up? How many baptisms were there in the last year? Uh, How many folks are in Bible studies? How much money is in the offering plate? That's usually the standard we use to evaluate a church. But Jesus' standards look a lot different. If you want to know how a church is doing, look at how they welcome the least of these. Look at how they welcome children. We've advanced a little bit as a society since back then in how we treat kids. Thank God. But there's still a pretty good test case. If you want to know how a church treats people who maybe aren't seen as valuable or as contributing in the world, look at how they welcome kids. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. We could put this another way. Another way to put this is, if you want to see how a church welcomes God, look at how it welcomes the least of these. And if you want to see how a church welcomes the least of these, look how it welcomes children. Now, I can already hear some of your eyes rolling, right? Did you know the eyes rolling make a sound? They totally do. <clears throat> but I can already hear it. It's like, oh, great. I know where this is going. Another guilt trip from Pastor Dan about serving in children's ministry. And that is totally where we're going. Like, absolutely. That's, that is, that is absolutely. I'm here with no voice. That's exactly where we're going. But don't check out because this, this is important. This is really important. <clears throat> Back in September, uh, we started promoting signups uh, to have backup volunteers in children's ministry. We're looking for people who can just serve as backups so that, like, if one of our normal volunteers is on vacation or out of town or sick, a lot of sick people nowadays, um, we'll have people, a list, a big list of people we can turn to to draw from to fill those gaps. Almost a year we've been doing those signups for nine months. You know how many names are on that sheet? Two. Nine months we've gotten two, which is not enough. It's not enough. Uh, I talked to counsel a few months back about signing up myself as a children's ministry backup. They didn't like that idea for some reason. Um, They want me in here and not in the nursery. You know, whatever. (laughs) But the need is that deep. And you might think, you know, what about the parents? Why don't parents just fill the gaps? Why don't parents help out in children's ministry? And the short answer is, they do. Just about every parent in this church, just about every parent in the church, serves in children's ministry at least once a month, and there are a few who serve twice a month. And most of the parents who aren't currently serving in children's ministry in some way um, are serving in other areas, like on slides. Shout out to Gary Young covering slides today. Thank you, Gary. Yes, absolutely. Don't want Gary Young in the nursery. Trust me. No, no he'd, be, <laughs> he'd be fine. Babies love him. Babies love him. Oh, that's, that's good. We love you too, Gary. <clears throat> uh, a few weeks ago, a few weeks back, we had a first-time visitor at our church who introduced themselves to me after the service. 
And uh, they were really nice. They lamented that we didn't have more people in the 25 to 40 age range here at our church. And I was like, oh, we actually have a bunch. They're just all serving with the kids this week. Which means that a lot of our parents, a lot of these new young families that we've been blessed to welcome into our church over the last, the last two years especially, a lot of them don't get to worship in here with the adults most Sunday mornings because they're with the kids. Now it's amazing to see our church becoming more intergenerational. It is wonderful. But how are we serving these families? How are we serving our kids? If I could take my pastor hat off for a second and speak as a parent, it's not great. It's not as great as it could be. If you want to see how a church welcomes God, look how it welcomes the least of these. If you want to see how a church welcomes the least of these, look how it welcomes children. You got two things right there, uh, two reasons this is so vitally important. First one, when we welcome children, we welcome God. That's huge. You want to draw closer to God? You want to see where God is at work in our church? Sign up to help in the nursery. Hang out with my kid for an hour. Ask him about his walnuts. It's <laughs> a weird sentence. But if your faith is feeling stale, if God seems distant, maybe you need to spend more time with kids. I see God reflected in kids all the time. They are way more spiritually attuned than me, probably than most of us. That's number one. Second thing, though, if we're good at serving kids, we're going to be good at serving the least of these. I know. This is one of the things I love about our church is that we as a church really try to prioritize service. We really want to make a difference, a positive change here in Brockport. Our outreach team does an amazing job at that through things like the teen closet, the gathering table. We've got uh, prom dresses we're giving out to, to kids who need a dress for prom. Outreach even covers Sunday school once a month. What about the rest of us? How can we prepare? How do we make sure we're ready? How do we practice? How do we make sure that when we encounter the least of these, we will be ready to serve them. You want to exercise those muscles? You want some practice serving the least of these? Sign up to help in children's ministry. If we get good at welcoming kids, we are going to be awesome at welcoming the least of these. Now, there's a third reason <clears throat> that this is so important. Uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but this one is really close to my heart. And that's that the faith formation of children is our sacred responsibility in the church. It's not an add-on. Children's ministry isn't something that we do so that, like, you know, the kids have something to occupy them for an hour so the adults can focus on worship. That's not what children's ministry is about. The faith formation of children is our sacred responsibility, and a lot of churches are failing at this. You see it all over our culture, probably all over the world. Um, youth retention rates in America are abysmal. The majority of kids who grow up in church, 66% of kids who grow up in church, according to some research, end up leaving the church as adults. That's two-thirds. That's not a great retention rate. 
That means that two-thirds of these kids, with all their wonder, all their excitement, all their joy, 66% of these kids who are raised in church end up falling away at some point as adults. I know we've seen this at our church. We've seen this trend. And we could blame parents for not instilling faith in their children at home. We could blame the media, secular culture. We could blame TV and movies. But we actually know what makes faith stick. We've done the research. We know the difference maker, and it all comes back to us. About 10 years ago, the Fuller Youth Institute, which is a research institute at the seminary I used to teach at out in California, they put out the results of a massive study called Sticky Faith. It was an incredible study. They wanted to see what's behind this. What differentiates kids who stay in church as adults from the kids who leave? So they followed the faith journeys of 500 high school students for six years after they graduated. They followed them uh, through their middle school and high school years, and then for six years as adults. Their sample included kids from different cultural backgrounds, different denominations, different states, kids who were in big churches and small churches, uh, urban and rural, kids whose families were super involved in church and kids whose families didn't go at all. And across all those variables, Sticky Faith found one statistically significant difference. Only one. One thing that differentiated the kids who stayed in the faith as adults from the ones who fell away. And that was how many Christian adults invested in them as children. That was it. That was the difference maker of everything they tracked. All those variables, that was the only one that successfully predicted whether or not a kid stayed in the faith as an adult. How many Christian adults invested in them as kids? And the magic number was six. Six adults. Kids who could name six adult Christians while they were kids who were investing in them, six adults at their church they had meaningful relationships with, those kids were exponentially more likely to stay in the faith as adults. I was blown away when I saw that. I mean, all that other stuff, size of the church, you know, how big the children's ministry is, the curriculum, out of all that stuff, it comes down to that one difference. As surprising as that is, it actually makes a lot of sense. The more I think about it, it makes sense because I can name you six adults easily who invested in me as a kid. I could tell you <clears throat> about Trudy Elmore, uh, my Sunday school teacher in grade school who got me really excited about following Jesus. Um, I could tell you about Tony Koshlek and Dale Schutte, uh, these, these uh, guys who led um, a Bible study for rowdy middle school boys on Sunday afternoons. Um, I can tell you about Mark Larimer, the guy who gave me my first theology book when I wouldn't stop asking questions when I was 15 years old. Um, or Dean and Marie Wildeson, uh, this middle-aged couple that ran a youth group out of their barn. I'm only here because people like that invested in me. When I was a curious, obnoxious little kid, that's why I'm here. That's why my faith stuck. So yeah, honestly, <clears throat> if it was up to me, it'd be all hands on deck. Like if I had my way, every adult in here who could make it up those steps and pass a background check would be serving in children's ministry once a month. 
if it was up to me, because it's that important. On an average Sunday, and you saw it, we have about 15 elementary kids at our church on an average Sunday, 15 kids who are excited about Jesus. That is huge compared to where we were just two years ago. I don't want to lose 10 of them because we didn't have enough volunteers. That's where the rubber hits the road for me on this. So to those who already serve with kids in some capacity, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for investing in our kids. Uh, If you're not currently serving in children's ministry, I still love you. Um, I still, um, I still think you're amazing. I'm sure you're serving in all sorts of other, like, amazing, important ways. But maybe consider just one Sunday a month or just serving as a backup. Maybe think about it. There's one extra thing you can add. Children's ministry would be the place to look. And I know, I know we have a number of folks in here who aren't physically able to serve in children's ministry. I get that. Maybe you can't do the stairs, or you just don't have the energy. That is okay. I understand. But there's still stuff that you can do. You've got a role to play as well. You make a difference when you come to a potluck and get to know one of our young families. Uh, You make a difference when you chat with one of these kids in here before or after the service, ask them how their day was. You make a difference when you extend grace to a noisy kid struggling to sit through a, a worship service. You make a difference with your prayers. Please be praying for our kids and our families. Pray for our parents and their marriages. Pray for our kids. Pray for our schools. Pray for Sunday school teachers like Pam and Christy, like Michelle and Bridget. Pray for whoever is in the nursery, especially when my son's in there. (laughs) I believe that prayer has power, and that is something everyone can do. Because when we welcome children, we welcome God. When we serve children, we serve the least of these, and it is our sacred duty. So let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the joy and the energy that kids bring into our church, Lord. We thank you for not calling us to the world standards, but for establishing our treatment of the least of these as the true measure of faithfulness. God, help us to be a great church. Help us to be a church that welcomes everyone, a church that serves everyone, a church that sees your reflection in the least of these, and especially in our kids. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.